to our live. How are you? I'm good. I'm caffeinated. You caffeinated. Meal. Had the first yes. meal for the day, so I'm feeling good. And you're sa- you're sandwiched up. Sandwiched um, up, ready to roll. Awesome. So I, I was, you know, just before we we started recording, uh, just trying to figure out the best way to describe what you do because it's it's so interesting. Um, mm. But you started a number of Web two. And I'm, I'm going to make the distinction between Web 2 and Web 3 here just because that's the space you're in now. But you started a number of Web 2 businesses. You worked um, at high-tech, high-growth startups, predominantly in healthcare, I would say. That's kind of yep. been your, your theme, um, including starting your own business recently. Um, but over the last, I'd say, 12 months, you've been red-pilled into Web 3 um as have a lot of people some people are still trying to figure it out i'm still trying to figure it out but i i I was introduced to crypto in 2017 when in san francisco and i made an investment in a company called binance and i think i may have told you this story but i bought it when it was you know 50 cents and i sold it at a dollar 50 and thought i was a genius and then it proceeded to go to 900 dollars, and that's when you question everything about your life. And I feel like that's what web three is in a, in a sentence, just this it's happened. Things are happening so fast. It's so easy to miss things. Mm. Um, but you've, you've made this, um, this dive into that world. And I just wanted to bring you on and discuss that and what that means. So why, why, why leap, why the leap of faith into web three? What, what was the thing that interested you most about it? What was the distinguishing factor? For you. Well, I think I think I'd had my similar experience to you, but with Bitcoin in 2016 or 15 or whenever it was, buying it at a few hundred and selling it at a few hundred more, and thinking I was a genius trader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, taking another year or two to realize actually this crypto thing's kind of big. So that mm-hmm. was probably late 2018, I think. We're starting to realize that it wasn't just a quick flip. Um, mm-hmm. Having spent my time doing product in, you know, the SaaS or marketplace web two businesses, mm. um, I thought that was my career. I also thought health tech was my career, given that I'd developed a bunch of domain experience. Mm. And then I kind of had the realization, well, I only ended up in health tech essentially by chance because I joined a early stage health tech software business mm. and I compounded that domain expertise. And so when I realized that I was only in health tech, essentially by chance and that I didn't choose it, I started to listen a bit more to where my attention was running and my attention for the past couple of years had been increasingly, you know, initially Bitcoin and then into Ethereum and then into the web three ecosystem that majority Ethereum enables. Mm. And I couldn't ignore that anymore. And so that was the switch that I made in uh, last year, 2021 was mm. saying to my now wife, hey, I think I'm going to move into Web3, make this like all of my time. I think it'll take, you know, six or 12 months. And then I think it took about six weeks. Um, mm. I feel I feel like last year. I find like people um, who come across Web3 very quickly make a decision about what it means to them. Um, and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, especially, and that seems to have become the hub for all of this activity. Um, just a lot of people just jumping straight straight into it. You, the company that you work for now or work with now uh, building the product um, is called Index Coop. Yep. Can you can you just describe 
what that is, what what the business is, um, yeah. but then also how it's structured because that that's a really uh, interesting uh, piece to this Web three puzzle. Uh, these decentralized autonomous organizations, these DAOs. Uh, but first, just tell, give me give me the background on Index Coop, why it interested you, and, and why you you thought that that was an interesting opportunity, and then we'll talk. Index Coop is there to make crypto investing simple and accessible. Mm-hmm. Now, the large majority of money invested by uh, individuals in the traditional finance world goes into ETFs or index funds. So this might be the S and P five hundred, the ASX two hundred or a thematic index um, for green tech or for some kind of diversified fund. That hasn't really happened in crypto yet. Mm -hmm. Crypto is all about individual tokens. I think this token's gonna go up or this token's gonna do well or not. And so what IndexCoop does is IndexCoop produces uh, index products that are native to crypto. Mm -hmm. So first big product that we launched was DPI, which is the DeFi Pulse Index. Mm -hmm. And that's a representation of DeFi. So that has a collection of a whole range of the top protocols, the top tokens in DeFi. And we've since gone on to launch a range of other other products. So really what what Index does is produces indexes or trading products that Mm. people can buy and they get exposure to a theme or a basket of tokens instead of having to do that themselves. And in in terms of uh, deciding the constituents of those funds, is that something that you guys do in-house and have a team for, or is it that um, is there a particular methodology that you guys undertake uh, to, to fill in the constituents of those particular um, funds? So it's both. Mm. Historically, we've worked with third parties who have good understanding of sectors mm. uh, or types of products. Um, we've worked with DeFi Pulse, as an example, who are a, a leading information portal for the DeFi ecosystem. Mm. Um, and we've also started to propose some of our own products internally. So it's going to look like both uh, third parties as well as internally proposed products. And Index Coop is the uh, the product engine that brings those ideas and those methodologies uh, to life, launches them, and um, and maintains them. Um, I think we're up to six or so products now. Mm. Um, and how is how is the business structured? Is it structured in a in the way a Web two business would be structured, or is it? Is there an innovation that you guys have worked on in that space so that it's more aligned with the Web3, uh, the Web3 mantra? It is, it is very Web3 native. Mm. Um, it's uh, IndexCube is a DAO or a decentralized mm. autonomous organization. Mm. The name is probably a bit exorbitant in some ways, a bit elaborate. Mm. Uh, I think really what it means is it's an internet native organization. Um, a typical company, a Web2 company, or your standard limited liability LLC um, private company is structured with offline documents. Uh, things have to be signed, and it all happens based on the jurisdiction of where you incorporate um, or trade. Um, a DAO really says this organization is a citizen of the internet, uh, in this case of Ethereum, so it exists globally. It doesn't yet really exist in any one jurisdiction. But what it does is ultimately provide the ownership of that organization to its members. So it's a bit like being uh, having shares in your organization, but instead of your organization being incorporated in the US, it's incorporated on the blockchain and all the documents 
are essentially public, uh, you know, smart contracts on on the Ethereum blockchain instead of paper-based documents incorporated in your uh, country of choice. Mm. And the major difference there is that a DAO has the freedom to update its governance, um, to be very clear about its governance, which is really how it makes decisions. And the token holders have a very large role to play in all the important decisions. So in a DAO, typically any major decision goes to vote and the token holders are the ones who vote on those decisions. But what, what, and that is how what constitutes, decisions are determined. Yeah, what, what, what constitutes a like an important decision or a large, large decision. And how do you distinguish that from sort of day-to-day activities, um, product related activities that, you know, making, mm-hmm. making changes to the website versus something that may impact the way that you guys deliver a fund to your end audience. It's an evolving definition. I'd say the more mature DAOs, um, which index is close to, I wouldn't say we're in the leading level of sophistication yet, but ultimately decisions that significantly impact um, large amounts of finances, um, decision-making rights, accountability, um, the kinds of things that would sit with a, either a board or a senior, senior executive team. Mm. Um, those are the kinds of decisions that ideally uh, go to token holders. Mm. Um, the most advanced DAOs are pretty good about not getting their token holders to vote too much. Mm. New DAOs typically want everyone to vote on everything, which is mm. gets tiring. You know, voter fatigue is very is very um, very real. So the ideal answer is token holders um, vote in the executives essentially that they want to to run the DAO and keep them accountable by voting them out if they don't if they don't behave well. But most of the day to day ops of changing websites, deciding on products, the executive function is is free to operate with the trust that the token holders have given them. Um, and so, for, for, so, you know, yeah, it's a bit like a board, exe- it's a bit like a board, you know, a representative board of directors, mm. which is, you know, the token holders electing an executive team and then really letting the executive team do their thing. If they, it's almost, um, it's almost like a, a board of accountability. You have, that's actually a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So the more advanced DAOs have kind of epochs or kind of terms, either that, that's a couple of months and mm. each couple of months, a certain um, number of candidates would go up, the token holders vote, and they're really entrusting those people who have performed well and continue to perform well with the operation of the, the protocol or the organization. Yeah. My, my first um, interaction with the, with the DAO was through, so I, I bought, and you have as well, I believe, these ENS domain names, um, yes. .eth domain through ENS yeah. Ethereum name service. Yeah. Um, and I bought it and then they said, oh, you know, there's this airdrop, these governance tokens. And I was like, what, what are these govern- governance tokens? Like, what do they do? What, you know, so I claimed them. Um, and that was my first introduction to what a DAO was because it was basically, they would propose some, uh, some new piece of governance or some resolution. I don't know if that's the right terminology for it. And then I would vote, yep. I would vote on that. Um, or I could delegate my rights to someone else who probably had a better understanding or was closer to the to the yep. interior function of that business. Um, yep. do, do you think that DAOs will become mainstream? You know, what, what does it look like firstly for, for DAOs to become mainstream? Um, and how long do you think that's going to, to take? Because it, it is slightly convoluted 
Um, you know, the concept of a company can be is well understood. There's shares. You yep. you legally own part of that business. You're a director on the on the board. Great. With a DAO, it's a little bit more abstracted, um, yep. and so people might find that from a legal standpoint, how how does, does me owning these tokens give me sort of a legal um, legal ownership of or legal governance rights of this particular organization? So, what 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 does it look like when DAOs go? you know, go mainstream or what is, what do you think that looks like? So I think there's, there's probably two ways I think about it. The first is that DAOs are really an iteration of the limited liability company that we've had for 200 and something years. Mm. And so it's really, a, it's a bit of an experiment. It's very early in the, in, in its, in its age. It's only about two and a half, three years old. You know, the, the Dow concept is very new. So I think it's, it's an exciting development where as humanity, we've, we've said, okay, well, we've had this limited liability mechanism. Now let's propose something new and it's internet native and it tends to skew um, influence um, and power towards the individual. So I don't think there's any unwinding of the DAO. Like the DAO is a concept, it's not going anywhere. It's here as an experiment and it's really, where is it going to be best suited? I think is the answer. Mm. I think the second part is that just like when the internet came around, um, traditional media didn't go anywhere. It was impacted, but it was almost another dimension. And so I don't think DAO spell the end or don't claim to spell the end of the limited liability company. It's more that now we have another mechanism or another dimension for a different type of organization or a different type of engagement. So I kind of think about it like that. The DAO is a new experiment that's now looking for um, DAO market fit or, you know, business make it business structure opportunity fit. Um, yeah. And, and we're seeing those kind of wild roller coaster of experimentation, successes and failures in real time. Mm. Um, Constitution DAO, where they tried to buy an original copy of the Constitution, which, you know, it, it failed. Um, but we'll continue to see these experiments play out. And I think DAOs will find their niche of where they work. Mm. Um, so that's kind of on the DAO as a iteration of, the, of a limited liability company as a mechanism. And then the other bit is, well, the regulatory framework doesn't really exist yet to recognize it. Mm. So in almost no corporations act around the world, do you have recognition of a DAO yet? Mm. We're starting to see that Australian governments saying they're going to do something. Wyoming, Wyoming. and the US have started yeah. to do something, but really as a, as a, um, as a government, naturally you want to recognize it and you want to tax it. Mm. Um, and as you see these large amounts of wealth being generated, um, naturally it's, you know, you kind of deny, deny, deny. And then when it's there, you say, okay, should we're going to do this? Uh, I'm going to recognize you so I can immediately start taxing you. I think that's a wildly interesting space. If there's any accountants out there, they should join web three and uh, accountants and lawyers can help kind of DAOs connect to the real, the traditional finance and, and, and legal system. Mm. Um, and that's how I see it. I see a DAO as this, um, it's like this it's a sphere. It's not in any country. It's it's everywhere, and DAOs will start to have portals into different countries, whether that's through a holding company or a limited liability company. Mm. Um, so it almost feels like a new layer, where 
it's pan global and then it starts to connect into the the traditional or offline world mm, it's so interesting mm. and your 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 experience with the dow structure at your current place of work pros cons what have, what have you found like how, how does it operate differently to sort of a traditional web 2 company does it maybe maybe it doesn't at all maybe it's sort of sits above that the operational layer um, but have, what, what have you found to be the, the sort of pros and cons of working inside uh, a DAO? I think the biggest pro is that it really goes a long way towards meritocracy over credentialism or nepotism in that the, the doors to a DAO are essentially always open mm. and often these communities are largely public and certainly public in some way so it's really open to anybody who wants to join a cause or a community or a business in this case or an organization and start contributing in a meaningful way mm. so there's very rarely resumes or real names required you can but it doesn't you don't come through this traditional look for a job and go through a recruiter and you know have interviews it's more like the door is always open to anybody to come and start contributing in whatever way they can mm. um so that's really powerful because suddenly the it's a bit like if you could walk into the front door of google and say hey google your marketing's shitty here's um something i prepared and i'm going to start um i'm going to start here's the content i prepared and you can see that it's good and google starts using it and then started paying you in google stock mm. that's kind of the the analogy where there's anybody can come in and, and start contributing and if they have the right skill set. So I think that's incredibly powerful and mm. the ability for people to self-organize globally without restriction mm. is the reason that DAOs and that G, the DAO genie is never going back in the bottle. Mm. If you have an organizational structure that empowers individuals and does so with much lower barriers, that does seem like a positive thing it's got a whole long, whole lot of like shortcomings and problems to solve and issues etc cetera, etc cetera. but that concept of agency and ownership um it's hard to see that being unwound mm. that's the pro on the con side it's kind of chaotic mm. because you've essentially uh, you said it well in a traditional company you say ceo and everyone knows what that means you say board of directors, people know what that means. You say um, team, marketing team, marketing division, you're like, oh, I know what that means. In DAOs, we've kind of, you're always trying to solve tactical problems, like how do we decide on this new product um, or market this new product? But then you face all these existential questions like, well, who should actually decide? Mm. Who has the power to do that? And so it can be pretty inefficient at times because in a traditional company, most of the existential questions aren't even on the table. Mm. It's just tactical. Do your job, do this. It's very clearly defined. Mm. In a DAO, because it's so free reign, um, it's very easy to get caught in lots of existential questions around legitimacy and who has the power to do things and what style of decision should we be making. Um, and it's easy for those to dominate the discussion when really you need to decide, are we gonna launch this product or not? Um, does, so I think there's, does index, there's a chaos there that's intrinsic to that flexibility. Does index have like a CEO in a, in the traditional sense? Nope. No. Okay. And so who would you look to? And that's been a challenge. 
Mm. So as an example, not having, um, and we've made significant improvements on that since, but not having clear enough delegated authority, mm. which is probably the key to, um, to efficient DAO operations, but not having delegated authority has made it challenging in the past to discuss or negotiate with third parties because they don't know exactly who, who to deal with and who has the authority to either decide or not decide. Mm. Um, in a traditional company, the CEO says yes or no, or the head of partnerships or the head of product or whatever it is. Mm. Um, in a flatter structure where there's no clear lead, no clear lead um, that can be much more difficult. So we've made some inroads into that, but that's definitely the downside. Out of curiosity, what, what do those inroads look like? Just for people that may want to start a DAO or someone who's interested in learning more about DAOs, because you, you, it seems like you guys are at the forefront of this. I haven't seen many. Pretty close. I haven't seen many companies, well, organizations rather, yeah. do this to the level that you guys have. So I know ENS is one of them, and there's a handful of others. Yeah. yeah. But you guys are you guys are a functioning, you know, organization that manages some serious risk. Um, and, yes. uh, and so having the DAO structures like add, add this other, other layer of risk. And so you guys will take this super seriously. Um, yeah. how do you, how do you handle that? What does that look like for you guys internally about delegating, um, internal decision-making and, and internal power for lack of a better word? So I think the, I'd say we're close to, um, we're very fast following some of the best run in my opinion, and it's, I'm not alone in that. We're pretty close to that leading edge. Mm. And what the leading edge looks like, and examples could be something like synthetics um, protocol, but the leading DAO models so far look like the token holders elect leaders to look after a function or a responsibility and are pretty hands-off in allowing those leaders to make those decisions. Mm. Um, index is some of the way there, not that long ago, only in a few months ago, token holders had to vote on pretty much everything from move some money from this account to this account, to hire this person, to build this product or not. And that really isn't, um, practical. Mm. It's not practical to vote on everything. So we've made material progress in that we now have a, um, We've got a clearer structure being formed. You know, these are the group of, you know, this is product, this is growth, this is governance, um, this is people and ops. Um, leaders amongst those functions who have a, a wider remit. And then we've got a council. So we have something called the, the, the Wise Owl Council. And that's a group of seven, which is kind of the tiebreaker or the, um, the group that takes action in areas where there's been too much debate or progress is not, is not happening. So, um, that, that council has now been, um, has taken, taken control over the things that sit across the whole organization. So sitting vision and strategy, deciding on, um, incentivization and, and compensation, deciding on priority list of or people to hire for the organization, mm. you know, those are typically the things that would sit kind of within it, within an executive team. Um, and that group of, uh, group of seven is on a, uh, a three monthly rolling term. And so each three months, it's expected that the token holders vote, um, active met, sorry, active members of the community who hold tokens get to vote on who is that representative council. Um, so where, where does, where does that, 
Yeah. And I'm just thinking from an entrepreneurial product standpoint, is there a piece of software that you guys use that allows you to manage like voting, governance, tracking of this sort of stuff, setting up the DAO? Is it, or is this sort of done, you know, custom? Uh, is, does it even require software? Like how, how does that work uh, at an operational standpoint? Fortunately, there is a number of organizations who are mostly DAOs themselves, mm. but building what's called DAO tooling. Mm. So that's tooling or so software products to do voting, to set up DAOs in its, itself, um, to manage cost and operations, to manage rewards. Um, there's a whole new SaaS segment, if you would, of providing software tools for DAOs to run more efficiently. So. That's what's an example of one of those businesses. Um, so a good example might be um, snapshot.org, which is probably the most, by far the most used platform for voting on proposals. Mm. Um, Parcel HQ, which is good. We use it for, to pay everybody. Yeah. Um, and Dow House. Um, is probably uh, one of the most common for setting up your DAO kind of top to bottom mm. it, um, in in one platform. From from my standpoint, uh, you know, 2017, really uh, mainstream crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum mostly, um, and then altcoins as well came into the picture. Uh, 2018, 19, things are a bit quieter, people were sort of building, but then obviously... Last year, NFTs became really, really popular and that became an on-ramp for just like general populace to come on board and experience crypto from a non-technical perspective, just sort of buying a piece of artwork. Um, but my prediction on DAOs is that kind of, and the reason why I'm asking you these questions about tooling and stuff is just because I think next year and the year after that will be uh, you know, the introduction to DAOs uh, in, a, in a more mainstream in mainstream sort of scenario. So I know with index, it's probably a little bit more tight knit. I don't know who the actual gut, I don't know. Can I, can I own governance tokens in index or is it kind of limited to? No, you can. So even though, um, you know, the index token is part of what, um, DAO members get compensated in mm. index is also available freely on the market. So anybody can go and buy index on the market and participate in governance. Um, we also recently did a cap raise that included people like um, 1KX and Sequoia. Okay. So, you know, individuals can buy the token and investors can buy the token. And so, apart from some lockups, they're essentially buying the same thing. So, so venture capitalists, uh, you're saying to them, we're raising capital, go buy index on the market, um, just like everyone else, aside from the fact that there's lockup periods as part of that. Yeah, typically there is, um, I think those, those deals get done um, on a case-by-case -case basis, but often there is some discount or some fixed pricing, yep. um, particularly if there's low liquidity mm. um, on the market. Generally, investors want to know the price they'll be buying at, um, mm. but there's nothing stopping them buying more. So, uh, Sequoia, if you're listening, the price is down since you, you last bought, so buy more. Feel free, to, feel free to top up those bags. This is super interesting. This is, this is um, it kind of impacts the way VCs are going to do their work because, you know, VCs traditionally want to build up sort of positions in uh in companies because it's kind of zero sum you can only have certain oh well i suppose it's zero sum as well in the case of index if there's like a limited circulating supply and they're kind of trying to buy up the supply 
I mean, mm. how do you, how do you, from from a B, I know you're not a VC, but from a VC perspective, like what are they, what are they buying when they're buying the token? They're buying one governance to their, they're anticipating that the, the, the token will go up. Uh, yep. Is that, is that really the incentive structure here? I think so. I mean, I think what's, there's probably two interesting differences. The one is that, um, you know, that, that VC can have a very active vote in governance proposals. Mm. So those major proposals that go up um, for the major VCs, they're a key player mm. and they can swing the votes. So they can often take quite an active role in, in DAO governance because they literally have a big chunk of tokens that they can either choose. They don't have to vote, but if they do vote, they can certainly mm. um, heavily influence the vote. I think the other thing is just like DAOs opened up a new dimension or paradigm or type of organization for individuals like you and me to go and participate in. It also, it's a total new beast for VCs. Mm. I know Web2 VCs who I've sat with and spoke to at length about Web3 and they're kind of scratching their head going, well, how do I do this? Like all the models for doing DD and valuation and a whole bunch of other things are, are, are kind of not valid, but there's entirely new dimensions of how do I understand how good the community is and mm. how interesting this business model is. And it's, it's a bit of a head scratcher for Web2 VCs. It, it's, it's a totally new space. There's, well. a, there's a, um, a constant battle on Twitter um, between the Box CEO, Aaron, I think his name is Aaron Levi and, and Chris Dixon, who I think works at, yeah. uh, where does he work? A16Z. A16, like everybody else. Like everyone else. Um, and I think you're a partner at A16 as well, or will be in the next. <laughs> Are you? Yeah, <laughs> well, I am, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's funny because you have two really high profile, well respected individuals just taking com two completely different tacks mm. to the same mm. problem. Who's, mm. who's right and who's wrong. And I, I think they kind of sit on a spectrum. I don't think they're antithesis of each other. I think they're just saying one's, one saying we're really early and one saying the time is now. Um, and we're kind of shifting along this, along this spectrum. Um, do you, I mean, do you side with any of those individuals? Obviously you side probably more with Chris Dixon, but do, can you appreciate that there's some pushback on web three in general from some of the web two enthusiasts? Yeah, I think it's, to me, it comes down to whether you're willing to admit or concede and deal with bad actors and some bad outcomes for a general, um, a trend that is macro positive. Mm -hmm. And I, to me that, to me, it's quite simple to side with web three generally, given that we see this play out with technology time and time again, where new technologies emerge, they have some downsides or some, some risks, um, upset some vested interests, but overall the progress is positive and forward. Mm. And so when cars came out, we had legislation to not scare the horses and you had to have a person walking in front of a car in some, in some cities. Mm. And so it's like, yes, the car is scary and it's noisy and it's loud and it scares the horses, but the macro good is people can move around more efficiently and mm. more people get to move around. Mm. So I think I struggle. I struggle if anyone who looks closely enough at Web3 and says, okay, well, we've suddenly made things a whole lot 
uh, less restrictive for individuals. We've opened up new avenues of um, commerce and the way value can be created and people can work together. And yes, by lowering those boundaries, we've made it easier for people to be bad actors in some ways, but the overall good of more agency, more ownership and more uh, geographical and, and legal freedom is kind of moving in the right direction. Mm. Um, that to me on balance is like, okay, well, we'll take all of that and we'll progressively deal with, with bad actors. And we'll build in the guardrails to protect people like you and me from making these sorts of investments. One, one of the big yeah. arguments, which I kind of agree with currently in the, in the current state of things is that communities. So if you think about airdrops, if you think about tokens, NFTs is kind of like communities, but they're saying that they're building these really vibrant communities and they are to some degree quite vibrant. Um, but one of the arguments that I've seen um, is that they're kind of driven by financial reward first. And, you know, people obviously want to make a dollar, especially when they're making investments of the, you know, in a in thousand plus dollars, um, especially when they're buying like a JPEG or something. Um, so they become very protective of that. Um, and so the argument is that like they're coming for financial reward and then kind of looking for the product afterwards. Uh, and in the world of startups where product market fit is like the, holy grail uh some web3 companies not all are they conflating a, a vibrant community with product market fit um what, what's your i mean what's your view on that I, I i think i kind of agree with that general premise but i think it will transition over time but as it stands i think people are pretty uh the, the incentives may be slightly skewed from where we want them to be Definitely organizations and individuals who range from a pure scam through to, um, you know, way overplaying the role of incentives. But I think two things are interesting to think about. Number one, pre-product market fit startups in the web two world don't really have the option, generally speaking. They don't quite have the same tools at their disposal that some web three organizations do. So in some ways, web two, web two organizations have less choice. They kind of have to find that product market fit first mm. um, because they don't quite have the same range of tools that, that web three organizations have. The second thing is the organizations that try and force it with incentives without a product it doesn't last. So the market's pretty mercenary. And there was a great example recently. There was an airdrop called SOS at, in the last couple of days of last year, which was related to OpenSea. Mm. Anyone who traded on OpenSea, you could, you could claim SOS. And I haven't looked at the token price, but I'm pretty sure it looks something like this, right? Mm. It was, you got a token and people were like, well, there's no, there's no value in me keeping this, so I'm just gonna sell it on the market. Mm. Now, someone must have bought it for people to sell it. so. I'm not sure why they bought it, but they did. Fast forward two and a half weeks, and a competitor to LooksRare has, to OpenSea has launched called LooksRare, mm. which did the same thing. Everyone gets a token if you trade on OpenSea, which is a competitor. Mm. But there's rewards for keeping the token. There's rewards for staking the token mm. on the platform, and there's rewards for trading on a platform which is mm. now a real competitor. And so I, th I think you're right that 
the market is more open to people being maybe caught in those. But on a macro level, again, the market is still fairly efficient at the end of the day mm. or more mercenary than efficient. But if there's no product, it's going to be very difficult to maintain. You get found out um, pretty quickly. If the Ponzi-nomics, as, as we call it, mm. you know, they need to be based, they need to work. Mm. Otherwise, it, you know, yeah. the curves look like the SOS curve. D to quickly just take a side route here, um, you mentioned looks rare. Yesterday, I staked for the first time on looks rare. Um, nice. I didn't quite understand what it was uh, or, or how it works. I was on your website earlier and I know that you guys do staking as well, but it seems like it's in sort of periods yeah. and blocks. Could you yeah. just give me the, like the for dummies version of what staking is? I'm sure it differs between mm -hmm. different organizations, but like I've, you know, let's say it's a thousand bucks on looks rare and they're saying that I'm going to get some rewards every, you know, consistently get rewards mm -hmm. for committing that capital. Yeah. Can you just talk to me about what staking is, how that works? Um, and just the, the, the four, dummy, four dummies kind of summary on that. Yeah. So I'll go back one step. The interesting example you asked before about Web2 companies, mm. you know, um, looking for product market fit and Web3 companies may be forcing it. OpenSea is operating as like a Web2 company. Mm. There's no token. There's no incentives. OpenSea is a marketplace. A bit like eBay takes 2.5% of, of NFTs transacted on the platform. Mm. Come and buy it. You know, come buy NFTs here or don't. Um, and it's a good platform. It's done well. It's by far led the volume, um, and it's where a lot of the listings are. LooksRare is operating much more like a Web3 business. It says, okay, well, whenever you, um, when you trade on our platform, the fees are lower, and most of the fees, if not all of them, go to the holders of the Looks token. Mm. And you can go and buy the Looks token, or if you trade on OpenSea, we'll give you some Looks tokens. So suddenly there's an incentive to start using this platform over OpenSea. And one of the ways that incentive is, as I mentioned, transactions, the fees from the LooksRare platform get distributed somewhat to the holders of the Looks token. Mm. Um, but in order to get that reward, you need to take your Looks tokens and instead of leaving them in your wallet where you might sell them at any time, you go and stake them or lock them up in the LooksRare platform. Mm. And while you do that, not only will you get some of the trading fees, but you'll also get additional looks tokens. Mm. So it's a bit like if you bought Google shares and then you went and locked them up with Google and Google gave you a proportional share of um, the revenue that Google um, earns mm. and gives it, gives it to you, as well as giving you a few little more Google shares mm. so long as you have your, your Google shares locked up there. Mm. So there's this compounding in, in, um, in, um, incentive for you to a not sell them, but and b show that you're not selling them by locking them up so, in that platform. So just the longer you do that, the more rewards you accrue. So just stake just mean lock up in this instance, or are they using my pretty much? Are they are they using? It usually means hmm. no, no. They're, they're not they're not using it in any, in any um, direct way. It's not like a bank. It's more a it's a uh, it's a bit like a vote. It's proof that you're not going to sell them. Right. Um, and what that does to the market is it naturally provides an incentive for people to buy them mm. because when you buy them and lock them up, you get additional tokens. Mm. But also because you've locked them up, you can't sell them. So that's a natural um, remover of liquidity from the looks token being sold on the open market.
So it's it's um, it's a fairly low risk proposition, aside from the fact that the token itself may lose liquidity. The token itself also may not be that valuable. Mm-hmm. As an example, the risk with looks rare is you can either sell that token when you initially get it mm-hmm. for ETH or USDC, mm-hmm. or you can say lock it up with looks rare. Mm-hmm. Now, if the looks token continues to appreciate in value, and that's probably quite strongly tied to whether people start actually trading meaningful volumes of NFTs on looks rare, mm. that will be a pretty good investment. But if the platform doesn't work that well, and or people stop trading meaningful volume of NFTs on, on looks rare and just go back to OpenSea, that looks token will start to be worth nothing. Deteriorate in value yeah. because there's no there's no there's no trading volume, so there's no there's no trading rewards. Mm. And the intrinsic the thing that you're being rewarded in, which is looks token, is worthless. Is diminishing in price itself. You're ending up holding more of a token that's that's not worth. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by that market being mercenary. Um, in that looks rare has to build a competitive NFT marketplace, mm. or that looks token is going to you know decline in value. And that, that that's just a, I mean, it's the same as startup investing. It's kind of a, it's almost like a, um, a version of investing in a startup because it seems like they're quite early and you're, you're getting it, access to the upside, but you're is. also taking the risk, but it's, it is. but it's like an, it's, it's, it's an asymmetric bet. Like you, you, you put in a thousand bucks yes. and you, you lose it, whatever, but the upside is uncapped in a sense. Yeah. And I think this is where a lot of the, um, the criticism of Web3, a lot of criticism of Web3 is that tokens, you know, can increase or decrease in value in a seemingly arbitrary way, mm. I think. I think that's the kind of biggest criticism. Oh, you know, apart from the drug dealing money, which is, you know, long since um, debunked, it's this unregulated, you know, wild west. Mm. And I think what is hand in hand with that is that, well, yes, and. So, yes, the guardrails are lower in that, more you know, bad actors have more remit, but also everyone has access to the same investing, essentially the same investing opportunities. And I think that's really undersold. You know, most developed economies have some sort of regulation, which is ostensibly investor protection, mm. which is sophisticated investor legislation, which generally means unless you're wealthy, you can't invest in a whole range of um, investment opportunities. That's not really protection because there's no protection on gambling. There's no protection on gifts. There's no protection on anything else. Very conveniently, sophisticated investor protections essentially stop the average person investing in a lot of the really great opportunities. And so Web3 essentially does away with most of that at the cost of the guardrails being lower so that, yes, there are more opportunities. But it's a bit like SoundCloud. More people, anyone can be a SoundCloud rapper. Mm. That doesn't mean everybody's good. Mm. Just like if everyone can invest, that doesn't mean all the investments are good. So I think it, it does shift the onus a lot more onto the individual to take agency for themselves and decide, is this good? And am I ready to be doing this or not? Um, mm. Yeah. Um, when, when you look at the, at the marketplace of you know, Web3, of NFTs, of DAOs, of cryptocurrencies, what, what are you looking at right now as someone who's in this space? What, what interests you? What's... What are the things that people should be looking at um, as kind of the next phase of, of what's evolving here? Well, you mentioned some of the main ones which, which stick out. I think NFTs are um, poorly understood. Mm. Um, 
Can can you including by me? Okay, not that long ago. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't that long ago. It was only the middle of last year that I bought my middle of 2021 where I bought my first NFT. Mm. Um, I think NFTs essentially allow human behavior that happens offline to happen online. We want to be part of communities. We want to demonstrate our status or our yeah, taste. Ego. <laughs> um, <laughs> wanting to belong. Yeah. Um, all of these things we do in the real world mm. um, and NFTs allow that to happen on the, uh, you know, online mm. uh, until until NFTs, that was very difficult to do for a range of reasons. Mm. Um, so to me, NFTs actually make a lot of sense. It's participation in communities. It's demonstration of, you know, who you are, and what, what groups you're part of. Mm. Um, so to me, that only continues. Um, you know, we, we saw some enormous change, enormous news, you know, even in the, just the last month, uh, I think Adidas brought one of the, the biggest metaverse, mm. um, wearable items in the metaverse Adidas bought them so like you wear the same shoes every day wherever you go there's no reason why the digital items that you have across all your games and experiences aren't perpetual uh, aren't persistent um so to me nfts just continue to grow mm. into um you know we'll, i'm sure this year we'll see like the big name all the big brands stepping into nfts in some ways like mm. it's like nike handing out you know you design some shoes, you get some upsides and rewards. It just becomes this tool to engage individuals and connect them to communities. Yeah. Um, and I think financialization is important to that. You know, the, the financialization element is often a, a criticism, but you know, the financialization is a reality of, of the world that we live in um, and NFTs enable it. So that, that's the pick for me. Lots more brands, lots more people using NFTs in ways that they may or may not. Um, expect and, and even be aware of yeah two, two things um on nfts and marketing it's become a huge marketing and branding tool to signal you know it's like kind of like a virtue signaling tool like oh we're we're kind of young and hip and we're with we're, yeah. we're innovative so I've, I've definitely seen that and there's been a big thing with uh these kind of uh food franchises buying dot eth uh domains yeah. and using that as like a, as a virtue signaling tool um two you, you, you mentioned the metaverse there's been a lot of like discussion around this and, and what that means because, you know, Zuck comes out and changes Facebook to meta. Okay, great. Is the, is the metaverse, this Oculus over here where you put it on your head and you're now in this new land. Um, but then there's also web three and there's like, there's all these new developments in that realm. To me, from the outside looking in, the two don't seem like linked, but the discussion has been that these two things are linked that seems to be the general consensus. How, how do you view what is in quotations the metaverse um, mm. in the yeah in the context of Web three and in the context of kind of VR? Are, they, are these things melt? Is it a melding of the of the industries, or is it something larger than that? I think to me, metaverse is a um, not Zuckerberg's definitely. Mm. It's a superset or an all inclusive kind of term for this combination of physical and virtual um, lives that we live. And I think the cliche one is everyone walks around with a headset. I think that's kind of a distraction and incorrect. Mm. To me, it's much more tactically. It's somewhere between a combination of your social media plus, you know, block, blockchain or NFTs to allow you to own and purchase and trade in the things that matter to you, whether that's in a game or in participation with a brand. Mm. Um, 
all the way through gaming. I think it's really undersold the size of um, the, the role that gaming plays, the number of people that game and the extent to which artists are performing in game to tens of millions of people, you know, already. Mm. Um, and then all the way through to yes, VR and, and AR, but that's kind of still edge case and, and just, and just part of it. I think it's really this combination of communities that we now find ourselves spending more time in virtually mm. than physically. Um, and it's this all encompassing, uh, experience that will probably have an increasingly virtual you know, proportion. Mm. Um, and I also think about it that, you know, we don't know what it will be yet. We have guesses. Yeah. Um, but it's like the, you know, I remember selling smartphones early on, just pre iPhone, mm. um, at a phone shop. And all we could think about when selling the smartphone was we were going to check the weather and buy movie tickets on a smartphone. Yeah. Like that's the only thing we could imagine you could do with a smartphone. And that was, you know, not that long ago, mm. we couldn't have imagined Uber and app developers and Snapchat and, you know, the entire part of the, the, the economy that exists now. And so that's, I think kind of the stage we're at with the metaverse. We're like, oh, it's goggles. And it's, this. we really don't know yet. Yeah. We're kind of taking, it's like as bad as it's going to be now mm. we're taking, it's the stupidest version of what it's going to eventually become, but it's definitely, you know, agency as an individual mm. and the communities that you're part of, it's definitely ownership mm. in how you monetize your skills or the things that you own, mm. um, or the parts of communities that you transact with. Um, and I think it's just more of the same of what we do offline mm. <laughs> might sound anticlimactic, but we want to spend time with people we enjoy. We want to belong to groups. Um, and we want to feel valued and, and part of something bigger, I think. Yep, understood. Um, no, I, I agree with all of that. And so back, back to your earlier point, it's kind of you know, that this macro trend of ownership and, and governance, and um, it's going to move more in that direction. And however that yeah that eventuates, whether it's in a headset or it's online or whatever, like it doesn't really matter. It's just that we're moving in that direction, and that's a net positive for everyone. Um, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to see how that is bad. Yeah. Um, move, we'll move on from the crypto stuff now. Um, and I had a couple of questions just for you personally, because I, I, um, I met you because I interviewed for a job and I didn't get the job. And then we became friends, which is a weird way to become mates with with someone but i probably a better deal actually i reckon well yeah they, they, well, there you go and, and <laughs> but I, I would come into the the work you know the, the place of work that i didn't get hired to and chat with you and you give me a whole bunch of advice and stuff and so that was really cool and so i've always wanted to ask you this question and i think it's fitting that i do it now and it's so other people can get the benefit but um who, who do you view as successful and why who do i view as successful um I think there's this, I'm going to say this person, it's going to be terrible because it's probably not for the reason that, that most people think of. Um, I think someone like Musk is really fascinating, mm. Elon Musk. And that's mainly because it's a multi-decade dogged pursuit of what that person believes in, mm. irrespective of the noise that, that surrounds it. 
Um, and being an engineer, I can't help but appreciate the extraordinary achievements from a kind of first principles up basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also liked McConaughey's and, and um, Matthew McConaughey's answer to this was myself in 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a, uh, a humbling reminder to behave in a way that your, that your future self will be um, will be impressed by and definitely influenced by being openly committed to the, the fundamental things you believe in um, and kind of working relentlessly on those. Um, to me, anyone that fits that bucket is, is, is the role model. Awesome. Um, I know you're uh, a strong uh, operator and I came across this weekly review document that you made online um, I might, sh- if you want me to, I-, I can share it with the audience. I thought, I thought it was really good. I only came across it the other, mm. uh, the other day and I think I'm going to use it actually as, a, as my own framework, my own framework. Cause I've been trying to come up, I've been trying to build my own framework for like how to structure my yeah. week and then how to structure and think about, um, my quarters and my years. And, and we've discussed this actually in person quite a lot. Is, is that, mm. is that, uh, that document something that you use regularly? Um, and is it important to you to document your successes and failures? um through a structural framework like that yeah i think to me my my brain tends to be pretty erratic and, and my, my tendency is overthinking rather than underthinking so tools like that make a big difference to me i probably personally struggled with that more recently than in the past due to traveling around a lot mm. um i I'm, i am a creature of habits so i found I've been traveling through New Zealand and you know, from Australia and, and, and back uh, over the past, a lot of 2021. So um, I found it more difficult to maintain that structure, but it's really clear to me that using tools like, you know, either the, the daily, the weekly, the quarterly planning has a pretty material impact on both my output and my, my sanity and <laughs> my anxiety level. So the short answer is I've continued um, to use those tools at varying degrees. And even though I know they're great and they have a good impact, it still requires a lot of effort to me to continue to go back to them and, and continue to implement them. Mm. Um, but it's impossible to argue with the results for when I have done it more. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I've, I've always wanted to be the person that could write down like the gratitude journal and the five things I'm going to accomplish today and tick them all off. And I, I, um, and I used to buy these structured journals and then I went to more of like a free, free flowing page thing. And whenever I, whenever I feel, whenever I feel like, actually, I think you may have recommended it to me and I I think I may have bought it on on your recommendation, but then I, I ended up going and getting something a little bit more just like plain text and just sort of writing when I felt, felt like writing, but just what I'm doing or what I needed to accomplish just having it on paper. But, um, like if you're like me, do do you like, do you have to have this stuff written down to, to have like a goal? Like, are you very goal oriented like that? Or can you kind of do your, can you go weeks and weeks and weeks without jotting down what it is that you're trying to accomplish and just working or like, does that give you anxiety or how, how do you view that? I think the lesson I learned that in contrast to maybe what I initially thought, 
I thought that planning longer term would really help me structure things, structure my, you know, weeks and quarters. And I suppose that works quite well if your months or your quarters are relatively predictable. Mm. I think I've had to shorten my time horizon quite aggressively mm. where I end up being, you know, thinking a lot about the short term, but actually now, especially in Web3, you know, even a month away, and maybe it depends what you do, but it gets harder and harder to predict that. And I think that's that was the downfall of some of the structured planning that I did before. Was so you plan a quarter out, um, and by the time you got to the end of the quarter, it was totally obsolete. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's true probably start- more along the line. True, true of startups as well. You, you can't predict totally. three months I mean, into the future, anything could happen. Yeah, so I, it's kind of an exponential drop off for me of you know, very high scrutiny on, on what now and what in the next day or three, but it drops off pretty quickly um, off into the future. And I suppose maybe you can make the argument that if you're aggressively doing the thing at the time that you know is most important or impactful, it's probably a pretty good strategy. The problem is bringing yourself to do that when that's not the most enjoyable or um, easy thing for you to do. That's that's probably the struggle that I have more. I, I'm easily, not distracted, but I'm easily tempted to do things that are easier in face of the, the thing that's that's more difficult or despite being more impactful. Yeah, that's something I definitely struggle with, trying to figure out ways to, to work on that. Um, two more questions and then I'll let you go because I know we had a little bit of a hiccup at the start. So we've run a bit over time, but um, rituals that frame your day, how you start your day, anything that you do at the end of the day, middle of the day, anything that you think helps um, frame the way you work and then improve your general feeling and productivity. Again, these have definitely suffered as a result of doing a lot of traveling for me, but they, um, they've been the same for a long time. Um, the first is exercise, mm. often first thing in the morning and generally earlier than later. To me, there's a very high correlation between my exercise and my well-being. I'm still not sure which way the causation flows, but the correlation is extremely high. Mm. So that's a that's a simple one. Um, when I'm performing, I also tend to get up earlier. Mm. So that's fairly early. Um, I'm kind of forced to at the moment because I'm working on a US time zone, but that fits hand in hand. Uh, early. It sounds. What's what's early like? Six, five. Yeah, five, five-ish. And you're going to bed early as well, presumably. Yeah, so that's, again, kind of an on-flow of getting up early um, and either starting work early um, or exercising early, which naturally brings your bedtime earlier. Mm. There does seem to be something important about the early hours of the day. Mm. Sounds very cliche and hustle porny. Mm. Um, at the moment, I don't really have a choice because I'm working on a US time zone. Mm. Um, but managing the, the sleep and wake routine um, is certainly the the second kind of impactful thing for me after exercise. Mm. Um, and the third one is probably learning to wind down and turn off. Mm. Um, getting up isn't getting up early isn't hard. Going to bed early for me is hard. Uh, my brain's on, so being able to figure out that by eight o'clock or eight thirty, need to wind down, lights down, reading candle book like really forcing mm. my brain into to wind down mode mm. otherwise i'm lying in bed till who knows what time 
Um, and so I find if it's exercise, waking up and sleeping, that's really most of the, um, most of the impact for me. Mm. Um, everything else is kind of small. I, I agree with that. That's my ideal setup. And then I found discord and then I was in the discords mm -hmm. until you just can't because it's 24 hours a day and it's, um, uh, but yeah, I, I just resonate with the performance, but you, when you're performing, waking up early does help. I'm not waking up early at the moment. doesn't necessarily mean I'm not performing, but it just means that I could probably be in a better mindset for work. Um, yeah. and, and the gym is definitely something that, that, uh, adds to, uh, releasing the, the stress of the day or just being behind a computer all day. Um, everyone's different though. Like mm. we definitely cannot say that early is better for everyone or late is better or whatever. Like I think it's uh, people work on their own. It's, it's totally important. Um, and I do agree with you that maybe I have not been able to nail down yet while working in web three. I think that's a, that's a widely held challenge for anyone who's working in web three is how to manage um, cortisol sleep mm. remote. That's definitely a remote, yeah, remote, another side of that remote working and work from home in general has put a, you know, when you, when you go into the office as much as like, you know, I'm, I'm ambivalent about going into the office, but going in, you know, you, you got your routine, you have to be up at least by six thirty to get to the office on time. You have to be in bed to get up early. So it puts you into this routine, although it does take the energy out of you. So, benefit work from home remote gives you the flexibility, but you have to have your own motivation and structure to, to abide by the, whatever works for you. Um, and it's so easy to slip out of, slip out of that when you've got Netflix and a TV and you're living with your partner and you know, you want to do fun things all the time and a whole bunch of stuff. That's just like, and just refreshing every token price every three minutes to see, you know, how your review, personal wealth is impacted. Reviewing deals at a 16 and, you know, there's a lot of deals coming. So <laughs> a lot of deal flow. A lot of deal flow. Um, hey, I'm gonna, well, last question for you. Um, it comes back to this productivity piece. Um, software products that you recommend people use, or things that you use on a day-to-day -day basis that make a material impact in the way that you work. Um, you know, it could be you know anything. It could be Zoom. It could be Gmail. Whatever. But maybe there's something in there that you got that you use that not many people know about, um, or that I know about that could be helpful. Um, number one would be do not disturb. Mm. Do not disturb on the phone. I, do not disturb on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's number one. Um, number two is turning off almost all notifications. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think to me, that's just mandatory. Mm. Otherwise I, I, I can't do much else. How do you do that? Is that, um, is that during work hours? You just do no, like, is it notifications across all apps or do you leave some apps open like Gmail and stuff, or is it just, you know, I don't want to look at my phone during work. It's hours. almost no, I think it's almost no notifications on my phone apart from like text messages, mm. um, which has some downsides because sometimes people want to get me. Um, it's almost always having it on as no one can call me if I don't know their number. Mm. Um, to me, those are just really easy wins. Um, and the same on computer, no desktop notifications for almost everything. Um, if you're in part of a discord or telegram, you know, it's hundreds of hundreds of notifications yeah. a week, um, easily. So, um, I think that's pretty, um, pretty elementary. Um, and the second one is, I mean, the, the follow on from that is probably 
very well known, but um, cancelling lots of meetings. Mm. <laughs> I think we're, especially in a, in a remote work situation, it's really easy to fall into the trap of um, let's have a meeting, let's have a meeting. Um, really unsexy, but every material period of time needs a justification, needs an agenda, needs an outcome. Mm. Um, and being. And how, how do you how do you say uh, that kindly to someone who's organising a lot of meetings? Um, without being rude, I usually pin it in the way that what how can I be most effective as a participant? So what are we trying to achieve so that I can be best prepared so that I can contribute? Um, that usually spins it around pretty well. Mm. Um, and the reality is most people, just as a cultural thing, most people sending meetings don't do that. And so it's very easy for that to be the norm. I think shifting to a norm of a justification and a plan mm. and an outcome, um, it's hard to turn down when pinned in the perspective of, I want this to be most effective for everybody. Mm. Um, I find that usually overcomes any of the, the opposition. If, and if people are like stonewalling about just wanting to have a chat or needing to have a chat, maybe you're getting fired or something, or they're just useless for the site. <laughs> I'll pass on the message. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, okay, well, mate, we'll, we'll wrap up, but is there anything that you wanted to share? Is there any place that people should go? Any final words that you'd like to bestow upon my six guests, my six audience members? Um, anything, anything from you? Uh... I'm glad we're friends. Thank you. That, I'm glad that, to me, that was a great deal. Yeah. Uh, very happy to be to be on and, and, and talking all things Web3 and uh, and being a, a human in this uh, technological era. Um, we can link my Twitter. I'm cavalier.eth um, on the Twitter and, and other socials. And the third one would be that if anybody's interested or curious and open-minded about Web3, um, about NFTs, about decentralized finance. I don't claim to be a profit or have any hot tips for investing, but I can certainly share a bit more about the journey, how it was for me. Um, and I would encourage people to have an open mind given it's, it's to me very obvious that that's probably the smartest move you can make in your career is understanding and becoming involved in web three. Um, and that can include being, involved in a very small way. So hit me up on Twitter. Ca um, Ca happy to help. Cavalier, C-A-V-A-L-I-E-R underscore E-T-H-E. Yep. Cavalier.e. Yep. Alex, mate, I appreciate your time. Sorry about the little hiccups earlier. Got to edit that, that part no. out. No worries um, at all. Thanks for having me. We'll catch up soon, mate. Cheers. Bye.